Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is an Emmy-nominated actor who stars in one of my favourite shows, HBO's Succession. You may also have seen her in films such as Steve Jobs, The Glass Castle and the Australian film The Dressmaker. On a Netflix binge, you may have watched Black Mirror in which she appears. As well as many on-screen roles, she has acted on stage. She grew up in my hometown of Adelaide and we both face the world as redheads. Sarah Snook, it is an absolute delight to be speaking to you. Welcome to a podcast of one's own. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. (laughs) Now, I am going to get to the burning question straight off for the many, many, many Succession fans out there. When are we going to see season three? Uh, I mean, we're about to start shooting. Mid-November is when we pick up again, which I'm very excited about because I don't know what happens yet. And I imagine we'll get the first episode soon to have a pre-read before we do the table read. And uh, yeah, I'm burning to get back into it. Okay, so if I get you on another podcast after the pre-read, will you let us know what happens? <laughs> yeah, sure, I can slip a couple. <laughs> no, no we'll, we'll have to wait for it. So if you're going to shoot in that time frame, then it won't come out until well into 2021, presumably. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine so, which is so strange because we started the whole process. Like My audition, I think, was in September 2016, so for us to be up to season three in four years seems kind of insane, but... There we have it. COVID's pushed a lot of things around, hasn't it? (laughs) It most certainly has. And speaking of COVID, you're in Melbourne at the moment. So coming out of what have been some pretty harsh restrictions and there's Mm. still a number of things you can and can't do. How have you gone in this period? I've been okay, actually. I've I've been fortunate to know that I am going back for season three. So I've had the sort of knowledge of future work happening and that kind of in the instability has provided something to lean on, stability and something to look forward to. And for the first time in a very long time, I've had free time, <laughs> just a time that is my own. So I've had not places to go and do anything, but things that I can do by myself. And, and I've got a great housemate that I live with who's 
been lucky enough to have me <laughs> not lucky enough I've been lucky enough to have his company for for a long time now I was expecting going to be in Australia for three weeks on holiday in February and then I just got stuck here and every time it's been oh come back in June to start shooting no no no, no hold off till August no 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 hold off till October uh, no 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 hold off till November so it's been a waiting game this whole year. So you've reading jigsaws, baking sourdough, <laughs> what's it been for you? I did do a jigsaw in the first uh, couple of weeks, couple of days of, of lockdown right back in March, but I have not picked up another one. You know, lots of imagination games. <laughs> My husband and I played airport security the other night. We just were entertaining ourselves and He'd put his keys on the bench and it was on top of the chopping board and it looked like he'd put them into the, the tray that you'd go through airport security in. And I'm like, well, we can't travel, but we can pretend we're at least about to. So he put all his, his laptop and his phone and wallet and keys into the tray and then like moved it through. It was like, come on, mate, moving through. That, is there any water in that bottle? Get rid of it. You know, just playing silly games like that. Losing our minds, basically, is what's been happening. <laughs> wow, I think it is time for you to get back to work. Some <laughs> <laughs> of this creativity out, the imagination is just running wild. I'm going to take you back to the very beginning. You were born in Adelaide in 1987 and grew up not far from where I was raised. Tell me, what was your childhood like? I had a great childhood. You know Belair National Park? I most assuredly do. Where did you grow up in in Adelaide? I grew up in Kingswood, not far from Unley High School, and we used to go to Brownhill Creek a lot. We used to go to Belair National Park a lot. I loved Belair National Park. I remember, you know, we saw emus and kangaroos in Belair National Park on, on the odd occasion, and I could ride my bike up there whenever I wanted. And, yeah, I had a great – that was sort of my childhood, I guess, going camping a lot. Any long weekend we had every Easter or – Anytime there was a, a public holiday, we'd, we'd try and go camping and that would take us, you know, sometimes like a 14-hour drive into I don't know where. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to pick them on a map now because I was I was the youngest being squished into the, the backseat of a Range Rover, leather seat Range Rover as well, as sticky as anything, but right out into the country, into the bush. And, yeah, those are the memories that I have from, from childhood. And when was the first time that you thought to yourself, hmm, I reckon girls get treated differently to boys? Do you know, actually, when I was growing up, because I have, you know, two older sisters, youngest of three, and dad, I think, he he grew up on a farm with lots of boys. And I think he probably would would have liked a boy, but obviously happy with the three girls. And also, I was much more of a tomboy growing up, and I still am. But he often, you know, I'd help him with, with the car while he was fixing the car out the back and like, hand me the hammer, son, or hand me the wrench. I'm like, dad! <laughs> <laughs> so I always, I don't know, I kind of, I guess that was, I always would want to do boy things and... You know, we'd go shooting rabbits and, and feral animals on the farms that we would stay on to kind of keep the feral population of animals down and those kinds of things. I felt like I was still able to do, regardless of whether I was male or female, but they were classed as boy activities, I guess. It is an interesting thing. I've only got my sister. There's only ever been the two of us. And I do sometimes muse what would have been different if there was a brother, whether the gender Mm. roles would have been much more sharply defined in the family home, a kind of unanswerable question. I imagine if I had a brother, I would have been much the same. So I don't know, maybe it's just an innate thing within us, whether, you know, I wasn't a girly girl and yet, and my two sisters weren't particularly girly either. Kids love to sing, dance, play dress-ups, act out little stories. We see kids do that all the time. But when did you get the sense for you that performing was something more, that performing was something you wanted to dedicate your life to? 
I mean, I feel like dedicate is a strong word that I probably didn't actually get to experiencing that feeling in me until I was at night or even having graduated from uni because I felt like it was something that I always did. I did the junior orator things and I did public speaking competitions and I did tournament of minds and those kinds of performing arts extracurricular activities at primary school and then at high school, loads of plays, loads of performances, those kinds of things. And really funneled my kind of education into that, but never really thought about it as something beyond school. And so once I graduated from school and went to NIDA, then the prospect of graduating and then having to make my own decision after that, I think that was when I was really like, oh, okay, I might be able to do this. And I also want to, which is exciting to choose not to do anything else, to choose to remain on the path, I think. On this journey to NIDA, the National Institute of Dramatic Arts, when you were at school, were there people who nurtured that young talent and were there some sort of cynics, some people who thought, oh, well, you know, you're enjoying doing this now, but this is not what adults do. This is not a proper job. It's not a proper path. Yeah, I think it's natural for any parent. My my dad, I think, wasn't super encouraging at the beginning, but also perhaps I think it's natural f- for that to, to happen because you want security and stability for your child. You want them to, to you know, once you leave them and, and they go off on their own sort of path by themselves, you want to know that they're going on a something that they can be safe in. And acting in the entertainment industry is completely uh, unstable and not safe. So yeah, and I had loads of wonderful mentors at high school, I think. Mr. Jeffress and and Sheldy, Nicola Sheldon, who is now Miss Trigler, who's still at Scotch College. They were wonderful teachers who were very encouraging of, of me at high school and then and then through drama school as well. I had really good mentors who wanted to, I guess, challenge me to think about acting as a job and acting as a career that you could choose, not just a hobby or something you do because you're good at it and you get parental or adult commendation for it, where people say, oh, you're very good at that. So you kind of start doing it more. If, if someone's given you a compliment for something, you'd, you sort of start exercising more in that, that arena. NIDA is presumably full of incredibly talented young people. Do you remember that experience as a competitive one, a collaborative one? Was it different being a woman than being a man in NIDA? I mean, inherently there is a little bit of competition, I think, in in a drama school kind of setting because everything is pitched on how you're going to graduate and whether you'll get an agent and what will happen beyond. But despite that, I felt there was a real sense of community there in my year group. And also since, I have still maintained friendships from the people who were in my year and gotten to the point where I've forgotten that that's how we know each other, which I think is really wonderful. <laughs> like I forget that, oh, we've known each other 10 years because we went to drama school together. Right. Oh, of course, I forgot that, which is lovely. But in terms of men and women, interestingly, and I think I would question this, there was only eight women and 16 guys in our class. And that was fairly standard throughout the um, classes from memory above and below me, that there seemed to be less women. And apparently it wasn't now, I wouldn't (laughs) want to put NIDA in the soup here, but apparently that was as a reflection of what would be expected in the industry, that it seemed to be unfair to release a lot more women into the industry if they're not going to be getting jobs. And that, sure, could be a rumour that was spread around gossiping theatrical drama students. But I feel like if that was true, then we should put more women into educating them in drama school situations and getting them skilled up so that they can create those jobs on the outside. Absolutely. And that's an interesting reflection, isn't it, of the industry overall. And thinking about the industry overall, when a talented young person like you comes out of somewhere like NIDA 
and you're trying to break into acting, you're obviously dealing with people who have got a lot more power than you, with studio bosses, famous directors, people like that. How did you manage that? Did you have a plan about how to pursue a career in acting or was it more organic? There was just the first opportunity and then the next opportunity. I think both. I think definitely it's hard to have a plan in this kind of job because there is that lack of control. It is more organic. One opportunity leads to the next with an understanding that unfortunately, because I wouldn't want to school women on just being nice and that gets you hired. But in this industry, it just it pays to be a good person, just be nice and kind to each other. And people want to work with fun people, with people who they enjoyed working with and then work hard at your job, which is to to bring sort of talent and technique and professionalism. And then hopefully they'll hire you again. But I did also have a have a plan and that for me, I wanted to be able to do both theatre and film. And I could see that, unfortunately, there was much more of an expiry date on women in film and TV when I was coming up. I don't think that's necessarily true now, although there are still some limitations. So I wanted to be able to pursue film and TV first so that I could create a platform to hopefully then return back to theatre that I had done, you know, since I was five. <laughs> you know, I'd never done film or TV until I graduated NIDA, but that was what I wanted to get back to. And talking about that expiry date question, I think women in all walks of life feel a lot of pressure. You know, there's a lot of, am I pretty enough? Am I thin enough? Am I young enough looking? But in your profession, all of those things have got a very white, hot spotlight on them. How did you think about that when you were starting out and how do you think about it now? It's hard to ignore that aspect and element of this industry, I think, because it is a visual industry and naturally humans are more inclined to appreciate beauty and things that they find beautiful. But also we're inclined to find things interesting if they are different as well. And I think that's important for us to be showing on screens that diversity and, and differences of people and, and differences of things that can be beautiful. You get used to an idea that you're meant to be a certain way or type and then believe that you're not. And so how can you change or be different? And I remember to fit that, which is not necessarily the right thing to do, but I remember being told by my manager that beauty fades, but talent doesn't. So work on one and not the other. And I thought that was that was really strong advice right at the beginning because it, it has been something to really lean on and use as a, as a North Star, I think. It's very yeah. wise advice. I wonder how many young women in acting get advice like that. I would fear that yeah. many get the reverse <laughs> advice. Yeah, and the roles that I wanted to play and had still wanted to play aren't the girlfriend or the, the two I see to the, the male lead. They're the ones that are complex. Like growing up, I watched lots of Disney films, and I, I now think about how how is it possible that I watched loads of Disney films and was never attracted to any of the princess narratives, and yet wanted to be Ursula, Jafar, Scar, um, Simba, Aladdin. I wanted to be all the like fun, interesting roles. Gender didn't come into that for me, and I wonder about this actually. Just thinking about that expiry date comment or question is that. If we weren't told that there was the possibility or potential of an expiry date, would we believe that that was true? And if we didn't know or believe it was true, then would we behave differently? <laughs> I think I think I probably would have myself. Yeah, I hope that whole expiry date thing is increasingly something that isn't with us. But I do think that there's still 
a different standard for female beauty than male beauty. That I agree. Fem- yeah. female beauty is uh, very rooted in, sure. in being yeah. youthful. But I think now we're, we're more inclined to discuss the merits of, of beauty at any age and maybe through those discussions of the positivity and like through the positive lens of looking at beauty at, at any age we can then, I guess, move away from the negative aspects of uh, the aspect of the closing door, I guess. And how much did you know about or think about the potential for sexual exploitation in this power differential as you were starting out? Did you worry about or did you encounter Me Too moments? We sadly know that power has been very misused in the film industry. Mm. I didn't actually encounter anything like that. And I I don't know whether I just wasn't aware of it or I wasn't in the right, uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, I've experienced some sort of beauty expectations and expectation on me as as a female lead of a particular film to be thinner and more tan and different colored hair and bigger eyelashes and whiter teeth. And that was a difficult way to begin a career. But that actually was coming from more of a female-led production, not a male-led production. Me Too, sexual harassment or anything like that, I've never experienced really. And talking about the difference between female-led productions, you start in the Australian film The Dressmaker alongside Kate Winslet and Judi Dench. Uh, The film's been described by Screen Australia as making a strong commercial case for a greater number of independent films helmed by women for a female cinema-going audience. Did you find that there was a difference when a woman was behind the camera? Obviously, you've had mixed experiences with that from what you've just said. In terms of female directors, though, I've not noticed a stark difference, which I think is a good thing in a lot of ways, in that there shouldn't really be a difference other than like a positive sort of aspect. Maybe there's a little more empathy or compassion with failure and you feel a little more safe to try something dangerous or risky. But I've, I have had quite good experiences across the board with directors, either male or female, and have found we work with some female directors on, on succession and they are, in my experience, in terms of what I experience from them directly, the same as male, male directors. What I have noticed, though, is that sometimes they can be taken advantage of and spoken over by oftentimes male um, members of the cast or crew. They wouldn't even know that they were doing it, I think. There's a, there's a slight change in dynamic that I get a little bit protective of and go, oi, just because it's a female director doesn't mean we need to change our behaviour. And maybe that's what I'm doing in doubling down on not changing my behaviour or thinking it's different. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's a very interesting set of observations. I want to talk to you about something you've spoken about in the past, which is imposter syndrome. And this is a feeling known to many people, but women in particular, that they aren't actually qualified for the job that they're given. How's that impacted on you as you've gone through your career in film and theatre? Yeah, I think I think with imposter syndrome, I've been so victim to it, I didn't even realise I was doing it. When we first started Succession, the first five episodes, I was convinced that they needed to fire me because I wasn't the right person for the job and I shouldn't be there. I don't know what on earth I'm doing here amongst these people. I haven't done comedy in this sort of realm before. It's too difficult. I don't know what I'm doing. And then it wasn't until about episode six, I was like, it's too hard to fire me now because it's too expensive. And it was that thought that triggered me going, 
or Sarah, if you've gotten this far and that's the thing that gets you over the line to actually do a good job, pull your finger out and just start acting. Stop going moaning and thinking someone's going to fire you. And like, if you've gotten this far and you've tricked them this much, then you can keep tricking them, you know? (laughs) That's totally imposter syndrome. That's classic. That is classic. But did that energy of thinking I could be fired, in fact, I should be fired, did it push you to do it better or did it hold you back because you were always second-guessing yourself rather than just being the actor you can be? Probably affects different people in different ways, but I was definitely just holding back. I think I was staying still in the fight-or-flight sort of mode. I was very much no sudden movements. Keep your head down, do your work, and maybe no one will notice, which is not a great way to contribute to a team ensemble dynamic. You know, you want to be forthright and be able to communicate what you need and what and be there for what other people need, not trying to be invisible and hope you can get away with that. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm going to describe Succession for anybody listening who hasn't seen it, and if you haven't seen it, then you must watch it. It tells the story of an incredibly wealthy and supremely dysfunctional family, the Roy family, in which the four children of patriarch Logan Roy are competing for the prized role of taking over the family media empire of Waystar from their father. It's devilishly funny, incredibly well scripted, and some have even said possibly it's in part inspired by the family of a media dynasty that started in Australia, in fact, right here in Adelaide too, but we won't go too far down that line, we'll probably get sued. This is not a show where goodies take on baddies, instead Everyone in it is some version of pretty horrible, vain, dishonest, self-seeking, unethical. Your character, Siobhan Roy, or Shiv as she is known, is ambitious and unapologetic about wanting to defeat her three brothers in the battle for leadership of Waystar. How did you approach playing that character with all of her complexity? (laughs) I think I thought more about how that dynamic was when they were children. That was really where I felt the truth of those characters begins. Because though they're playing with such dangerous kind of macro decisions in a big sense, you know, the decisions they make on a whim and in the boardroom that day have huge effects down the line. But the dynamic is still quite within the family, which is quite the micro society in a way like they really they have a family dynamic and that's how they influence their decisions I guess and so for for Shiv growing up in a family of of boys having three older brothers who are all very competitive and all competing for their father's love she really could have gone the princess way she could have gotten away with 
just flouncing around looking pretty and tossing her hair and being daddy's girl and and having a fairly easy life like that but instead she kind of throws her hat in the ring and wants to compete and that I think was the was the foundation for me to to begin with Shiv that she's a fighter and she's very much like like Logan. She is definitely a fighter and it is a refreshing change from the way we see women portrayed in film and the assumptions that are made about women in real life. I mean, often we assume that women should get to succeed if they're sort of purer of heart or more selfless than men. We don't actually have leadership models where we say a woman scrapped it out, she's won through, she's been just as self-seeking, just as difficult, just as prickly. But that's what Shiv is. And was that one of the things that attracted you to the role, that it's very atypical to what one would normally see on the screen for a woman? Oh, definitely, definitely. I'm much more interested in playing women who have a complexity and also a dubious moral compass that we can go, I really like her. Oh, hang on, do I want to like her? I'm conflicted about why I like her. I don't agree with her, but I like to back her. Like that, I think, is much more interesting than having women fit into this, you know, what is it, the mother, sister, lover, whore, kind of Madonna. Those kinds of versions of women are so two-dimensional. And if we can keep creating these characters that are multifaceted and complex, then we're going to see more diverse stories. She's anything other than two-dimensional and I've been (laughs) through all the roller coaster of bagging her and then peeking between my fingers because she does something that you just can't believe. But very much looking forward to the next season. Uh, (laughs) When you inhabit a character like that, their life, their clothes, how do you reconcile that with how you see yourself and how the world sees you? I presume in shooting succession, you've been on very elaborate sets and locations. You've got to be surrounded by all the trinkets of wealth because that's part of the story. How do you then feel about that at the end? Does it somehow change you? Do you take it with you or do you just go, that was work today and then you're back to Sarah? Yeah, I, I tend to be more of that ilk, that that was work today and I'm, I need to go back to, to Sarah. And it's actually been really nice having this time off because of the pandemic to go, oh, yeah, great, this is me. <laughs> like Back to kicking the footy in the park and, and wearing trackies and, and no makeup. It is nice then to get to play with all the trappings of wealth and, and then hang up those high heels on the shelf because it's it's definitely not me. And that was, I guess, part of the imposter syndrome thing of going, well, I can't play this character because I'm so far from understanding what it is to be supremely wealthy and and in control of that kind of business and, and in politics and in American politics as well. And but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun though. I, I have wistfully looked at some photos of us on the boat whilst I've been in lockdown, stuck inside, unable to travel and went, wow, who was that? Who got to do that? That's amazing. I, it's, uh, it feels very long ago that doesn't feel like it myself at all. What have you learned about your acting abilities through this role? I think I've learned that I am, well, I was about to say, oh, that's interesting. How's that? The sentence I was about to say was, I think I learned that I'm funnier than I thought I was. But then I went, I think I learned that I'm maybe, hopefully, and then did all the <laughs> underpinning, like, all the taking aways. Yeah, I don't know. I, I've learned that I enjoy acting more than I have ever done so before, I think. And I, I guess I've learned what it is about acting that I like, which is the 
the spontaneity and the game of it, the the playfulness, the the way where you can know what's coming because you know the script, but you can you can sort of lob the ball that way and know that the person's going to run that way to catch it if you if you're in on the same page together and you can sort of you're playing a game where you both know the end, but there are nuances and minutiae that you can twist, and that's really fun. Being in acting like politics means that all of your triumphs and your losses are played out on the most public of stages. Uh, This year you were nominated for an Emmy alongside a who's who of incredibly talented women. How did it feel to be nominated? And tell me about your decision to flash a pretend Emmy of tinfoil as a good-natured joke when you didn't win. That was because when I was getting my hair and makeup done, my housemate was sort of just twiddling his thumbs bored and was like, I'll make you an Emmy because what if you win? You're going to need one and you're in Australia. So that I'll just make you an Emmy. And then so he'd made this amazing thing. It wouldn't stand up. So I'd put it on – actually, I've got my water bottle here. I put it on my water bottle to make it like a, an actual sort of a statue, I guess. And uh, it just made it feel a lot more, I guess, all – all of its sort of bells and whistles and, and silliness and, and it made it more fun, I guess, to really get into it all and to make it something even though I was just at home. And do you very much regret that that couldn't be the Emmys as we normally know them? No, not at all. That was that was fun. I had a great time. <laughs> it was just so silly. I mean, I'd love to go to the Emmys again and hopefully if it happens again to be nominated would be wonderful. But I think this is my first time. I went uh, the year before, actually, to the actual event, which was fun. But to be nominated this time and be able to just be at home for it was kind of wonderful. I got to stay in my pyjama pants and I got to be able to be with my, you know, close friends and and celebrate in, in a way that felt more personal and close to me and more meaningful to me. Helen Mirren has described you as spectacular and said she was blown away by your work and wouldn't sign on to the film Winchester unless you were involved. How common is that kind of support from other actors? I'd like to believe that even in the world of Hollywood, women find a way to support women. Is that right? I think so. That's been my experience, definitely. And I noticed when I graduated from NIDA that because you end up hanging out with the same people, you, you're all in the acting community, you meet more actors, you meet sort of your community grows larger with, with each that graduates because everybody else knows everybody else then. I realised very quickly that a conversation at, at parties or social events that involved, oh, are you working or what are you auditioning for, became very uncomfortable if someone was auditioning and someone wasn't. And the only way to kind of solve that was to say, hey, I auditioned for something, you should go in for it. To get rid of the competition, to believe in abundance, I guess, then brings it on. And and I think my experience then has has been of that kind of abundance and that camaraderie then to go, hey, I've auditioned for this, but you're actually better for the role. <laughs> do you want to do you want to um, go in for this? Call your agent, see if you can. And certainly from from older women, all I've had is strong mentors in in all the jobs that I've done. It's fantastic to hear. Now, obviously, Succession is on the horizon, filming the next series. Other projects that are in the future? Yeah, I'm actually doing Persuasion. Jane Austen's Persuasion, playing Anne Elliot. Next year should be middle of next year to to film that, and I'm so excited. I'm super excited about that one. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great script. With a female director as well, Mahalia Bello, it should be really fun. 
That is fantastic. I have had Tanya Plebisek on this podcast, a very well-known Labor politician in Australia. Mm-hmm. She is the biggest Austin fan of all time. She will be delighted. Oh, that's that's good news, yeah. <laughs> Let me come now to the specific questions that we ask at the end of each podcast. I ask my guests to comment on a statistic or sometimes more than one. Anyway, here's your run of statistics. <laughs> According to the Annan Inclusion Initiative, which analysed 1,300 movies in 2019, 27.9% of speaking roles in action or adventure movies went to women. By the time you're looking at comedy, it's 38.7% of speaking roles. They then looked at the top 100 movies, 43% depicted a girl or a woman as a lead or co-lead, with three of the leading women actors aged 45 or older. Any of those statistics surprise you? Not really, and they're disappointing. But I wonder also what the movies themselves were that were in the top 100. I'd like to, I, I guess, know what our interest broadly is as, a, as an audience to see what kinds of movies we're watching and whether there's a way we can encourage... I mean, and maybe those movies are hopefully more diverse and yet still gendered toward (laughs) bias towards the male actors. And that's, you know, at least there's more diversity rather than just a a white male lens. I would hope that there's, there's more opportunities, and I do feel that there are more opportunities now than even five years or ten years ago in film and TV. And I think there will be more as well as we as we go forward because there are more women in, in decision-making roles. As soon as it's in a commercial interest to have more women in, in roles, then it's, it's going to happen. And I think the, the more we can prove that we are box office draws and also actually the less we rely on just box office for, <laughs> for our, our metric, then we can hope to change that kind of thing. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? Ah... Uh, I just ignore it. I just don't have time for it. So I don't take it on. I, I, I thought about this and was really, it'll come to me another time. But I did have a, a good old think and thought, no, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, other than just a bit of a boys clubby kind of thing where, you know, with a female director on, on set where I get a little bit of my backup going, I wonder if you're saying those things because it's a female director. And that may be me being sensitive to it, like I said. But in terms of direct misogyny to me personally, I've been pretty lucky to be spared from that. If you had all the power in the world just for one day and you could make one decision to improve the life of women around the world, what would you pick? The onus of contraception to be on the men, (laughs) to be on the male, that it wasn't just us having to deal with the pill or, I mean, condoms, obviously, they're a necessity for STDs and STIs and all that. But if it were easier for you not to be pregnant because of something that the man was doing, a pill or something that they had to take, then yeah, that's what I would change. I think particularly women in in developing countries would be in a far better position. They didn't accidentally get pregnant because of something a man could have controlled. A very good idea. Virginia Woolf says, it would have been impossible completely and entirely for any woman to have written the plays of Shakespeare in the age of Shakespeare. Sarah says? I'd love to disagree. I would love to heartily disagree, but I think she's right. I think what woman would have been given the space or time to sit and think and write at her own leisure in her own space without it being expected to 
do something else, to raise a child, to do the cleaning and washing, the cooking, other than keeping the household going or any other task, also let alone not having the education opportunities to get to that point. There's an essay that Mary Oliver wrote where she talks about how a poet is one of the only professions where you have to sit still and be in total inaction for the action to happen. And I think that's very true in in this where Shakespeare would have been allowed the time to just sit still and be and be in silence to create. And I don't know whether a woman would have had that opportunity. I think, unfortunately, that's right. But we've had some time to kind of sit still together, uh, talking <laughs> away. Adelaide, Melbourne, thank you so much for joining me on a podcast of one's own. Thank you. It's been great. You've been listening to a podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. If you want to learn more about our work, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website and sign up to our updates. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and James Miller with King's Online with editing by Nick Hilton. If you liked what you've been listening to, we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own.